Our study today is entitled Ezekiel's Exile. Ezekiel's Exile. Has anybody here heard the name Ezekiel from the Bible before? A few hands? Okay. By show of hands, how many of you know who Ezekiel is? Okay, yeah, okay, there you go. Um, I know we learn his name when we go down the books of the Bible, and we kind of skip through it. We might know Daniel, right? Daniel's book is very close to Ezekiel's in the Bible, and we studied about Daniel over the last couple weeks. But today, we're going to be studying about Ezekiel. Ezekiel was also from Jerusalem. Ezekiel was also exiled. He was taken captive as prisoner when Babylon had first attacked, attacked Jerusalem. We're just going to set up the story here a little bit. So he's this priest living in Jerusalem. Babylon comes and attacks the city. And they say, okay, we're going to take some of you guys with us as prisoners, and you're coming to Babylon. And you don't get to live in our houses. We're going to set up a little refugee camp for you. And it's going to be down by the water. Okay, don't you worry. We have water. <laughs> yeah. And five years after this happened, where they were all taken captive, Ezekiel was one of the first wave of captives taken. And it's his birthday, five years later. It's his birthday, he's missing home, he's getting homesick. And it wasn't just his birthday, it was his 30th birthday. This is the year that he would have been installed as a priest in the temple back in Jerusalem. So imagine him sitting there, I'm a priest, I'm living for you know, the holy God of heaven, and here I am, captive, prisoner sitting at a refugee camp. He went down to the river in Babylon, and he sat down. I don't know, what was he thinking? It's my birthday, this sucks. You know, where's my cake, you know? Maybe I wanna blow something out. So he sits there by the river, and while he's there, he looks up into the sky, and all of a sudden, he sees storm clouds starting to roll in. And in that storm cloud, there were creatures, winged creatures. And these winged creatures, their wings were outstretched and touching each other. And he looked closer, and there was something weird about this, these creatures. They had four faces. Four faces. Now, I know a lot of people. And the most faces I've ever seen on people are two. Some two-faced people. So, no, but there were four, <laughs> you know, a different sort of creature. You know, two-faced people are different creatures too, okay? <laughs> but there were four faces on these creatures. Do you have a picture of that one there? So you see these creatures with their wings outstretched. And near these four creatures with the four faces were four wheels, okay? And on top of these creatures was a, a platform, this shiny platform, okay, that was over them. They were supporting it. They were holding it up. And on top of that platform, there was a throne. And on top of that throne, there was a human-like figure. 
Happy birthday. Surprise. He's sitting there and he's like, what is this? What am I looking at right now? Does anybody else see what I'm seeing? Am I going crazy? Okay. And he's looking up in the sky and he realizes all of a sudden, oh, wait, this looks so familiar. This looks like it's as though this is the presence of God. Remember, in the, in the temple, in the most holy place, there's an Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the presence of God was known to reside. And there would be these uh, creatures, these angels, this cherubim, with their wings outstretched, covering over the place where, where God's presence was, the Lord's presence. When Ezekiel saw this, he said, wait, hold on. This is, this is the presence of God, without a doubt. I, uh, the cherubim, it's exactly as they talk about. And, and he's shining with this glow and this radiance. There's nobody else this could be. This is the presence of God. Question. What was the presence of God doing in Babylon? The presence of God was supposed to be amongst his people in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the most holy place, at the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. It's like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord when I saw it. I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. That's Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. That word glory, the Hebrew word kavod is used for the word glory here. And kavod talks about the significance, the heaviness, the importance the significance of God's presence. So the glory of the Lord is here. His presence is there. But what is God's glory doing in Babylon? It said that a voice spoke to him. It spoke a prophetic duty. From chapters 1 to 3, we see that God commissions Ezekiel to accuse Israel of breaking the covenant of God by worshiping other gods. And he was to warn them that Jerusalem and the temple will all face imminent destruction. Remember, they were taken captive. They were already, Jerusalem was already attacked by Babylon. Babylon besieged Jerusalem taking some captive and some were still there. So the word that God gave Ezekiel, warn Israel because they're worshiping other gods, that's breaking the first commandment. Shall have no other gods before me. All right? God's looking at them and he, he has a message for them still. Even though they disobeyed, God goes after them. He pursues them and he wants to give them the message. You have done wrong, and I warn you, this land that I've given you, it's not going to be there for you much longer. Imagine if you were taken away from your home, and you're always thinking about going back home one day. 
You're exiled somewhere else, a place you didn't feel like you belonged because home was what you knew. And then you get this message of, wait, hold on, I did something wrong and now they're gonna destroy my home? Could you imagine if a lot of you had immigrated from the Philippines? And I'm sure that there's a piece of your heart that's still there. I'm sure that there's a piece of your heart that calls that home. But what if I stood here today and said, listen, all you guys have other gods before you, and God's going to have judgment over your home, and you will have no more home to go back to. The Philippines will fall. It will be utterly destroyed. How, does, how do you react to that? Where's home? I mean, you're here today. Many of you have been here for a number of years already. But home is still the Philippines, isn't it? You haven't claimed this place as home. So it's almost like you're exiled here to Canada where things are wonderful and cold weather. You're exiled to the winter of Canada, you know? And all you're thinking about is home. Nobody wants to hear that their home's gonna be destroyed, all right? So God gives Ezekiel this message to tell the people. Now Ezekiel, he gets all creative, right? Ezekiel gets all creative, and he tries to do some sort of um, street theater, okay? He gets out on the street, and he does weird things, like uh, he builds a small model of Jerusalem, and then he puts on a little play about how it's besieged and how it's going to be destroyed, and they're taken, they're exiled away from home, okay? He's trying to tell them, it's almost like a parable, a visual parable, Another thing that he does, he uh, chops off his hair. He has to shave off his hair, shave off his beard, and then slice it up with a sword, and then weigh out the hair and burn it or something. And it's just talking about the strength and how they're going to be weighed because of the, the things that they've done, okay? But he's doing weird stuff, and it just seems like this dude's kind of crazy. He's playing with little toy models of a little city, and he's cutting off his hair and chopping it up and burning it. Like, if you saw someone like that today on the street, what's this dude doing, man? Go to Young and Dundas, okay? Uh, you, you might see a couple. Okay, but maybe they have a message, I don't know. But that's what a lot of people thought about Ezekiel, and they were not getting what he was doing. Here's the weirdest one, I think. He, he laid down on the ground, kind of bound and laid on the ground for about a year. And he would eat bread that was cooked over poop. Human feces. Imagine the aroma. What was the point? What was he trying to say? It's like, ew. You know, they actually have bread today that's called Ezekiel bread. Go to the grocery store, yeah. And you might be, ooh, Ezekiel bread looks healthy. Let's start eating better, yeah. But then you read the text and you go to the Bible, the, the bread cooked over poop. You know, it's weird, downright just weird. But he had a point in that as well, where he was trying to let them know that this is what it would be like when you're exiled. You're eating something that's prepared over something worthless that's just burnt, it's waste. Okay, and he's trying to send this message to the people. For a year, he's lying down. What a great year. 30 years old. 
You know, Jesus started his ministry here on earth at the age of 30, right? I'm sure Ezekiel didn't have this in mind. I'm going to be a priest and I can't wait to be installed as a priest in the temple serving my God at 30 years old. But he's exiled. He goes by the river. He gets this vision from God on a storm cloud approaching him. It's almost like what happened on top of Mount Sinai, right, with storm clouds that were coming in and all this glory right there. Imagine. What do you do with that? And God says, listen, Ezekiel, this is what you're going to do. You're going to talk to the people. You're going to find creative ways of doing it. But guess what? No one's going to listen to you. I have a special message that I want to give my people, and you're going to tell it, but no one's going to listen to you. If you were Ezekiel, what's the point? Why should I even bother? What is God really having me do? But he does it. The people of Israel would reject him, not because of what he's saying. The people of Israel reject him because their hearts are rebellious against God. Their hearts are hardened against God, so they don't hear what the Lord has to say to them. So after that year of lying down and eating poop bread, we see, uh, we see that he gets another vision, finally another vision after a year. And it's like he's almost translated out from where he is and back to the temple in Jerusalem to see what's going on at this exact moment. So they've been exiled for six years already by this point. Okay, And he's seen what has happened. There is an idol that's been erected before the temple in the courtyard. And all the elders of Israel that remain are worshiping and bowing down to this idol. And they're not just worshiping these idols inside. They're outside. They're also worshiping inside the temple. Okay, And there's another, another idol that's put up. I think the name is Tammuz. And that idol is put up, and all the women of Israel are also bowing down and worshiping this God, this idol. This is God's temple. This is where his presence was dwelling in the most holy place. Remember, the year before, God's presence left the temple and traveled over to Ezekiel in exile. Although, God, although God's presence left Jerusalem and left the temple, he did not abandon his people, you see. Instead, he followed them into exile. What an awesome God we serve. What a loving God who pursues us. And when we go wrong... He wants to set us straight. He wants to get us back on that right path. Ever since then, we see this is how God operates. I don't know how you are today. Maybe you're a person that feels like, I accepted Jesus. I, I try to follow God. I try to be a good person. But why does it feel like God has abandoned me? You feel kind of misplaced. You don't know where you really stand with God. That's kind of like what it is to be in exile, my friends. Like we're sitting here and we're like, wait, hold on. 
if I belong to God and God is in heaven, then I don't belong here. This world is not my home. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm part of God's family. Why am I still here putting up with all of this? This isn't my home. We are like exiles in a different land. We are citizens of heaven living in this crummy world where we have poop bread to eat. Where we don't understand things are clouded, our understanding is clouded. We can't see God's glory in this place and we feel like God has abandoned us. Remember when God's presence came to Babylon and Ezekiel was there? How many people saw that? Just one. And sometimes, I'll be honest, sometimes I feel like so many of my friends are further on in their spiritual journey with God. I wish I could be more like them because, you know, they have a real faith in God that puts mine to shame. Sometimes I feel like a phony, you know, because it's like they got it all together. Their, their life is a mess and it's all ugly, but they love God so much they're not giving up on trusting him. And it feels like I have to pretend like everything's okay all the time. Why? Oh, because I'm Pastor Tim? Life is ugly. Life is messy. And just because you don't see God today, just because he seems so far away, I want you to remember this first part of the story. That even when we go astray, our God is still pursuing us. Our God is still trying to break his way back into our hearts. Even though we might harden our hearts against God by choosing other things, that's idol worship. What was happening at the temple? Idol worship. Do you know what that's the equivalent of? Adultery. Unfaithfulness. That's what it is. Are we cheating on God? At the end of all that, that vision that he just had, there's a message that God gives Ezekiel in chapter 11. It's a message of judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. God's glory appeared to Ezekiel in Babylon because Israel's idolatry and covenant violations had become so blatant and offensive that God had left his temple. They had driven him away, but he hasn't abandoned his people. He goes into exile with them. At the end of the vision, God promises that he will return a remnant, a remaining few, a remnant of Israel back to the land, and he will transform them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new, soft heart of flesh so that they can love and truly follow their God after all. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Only you know for yourself whether your heart has been hardened against God or not. 
Sometimes when you're confronted with God's truth and it says something that calls us out on our garbage, on our trash, a heart of stone will respond with pride and arrogance. We would deny God's truth and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't need to listen to God. That doesn't fit my lifestyle, my Christian lifestyle. Is your heart hardened toward God? Is it causing you to disobey, to lead you astray? That doesn't mean that you will never stumble. It doesn't mean that you'll never fall. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're always pleasing God all the time because that's impossible. We're human. Our nature is sinful. And then we fear judgment, don't we? I think it's the enemy that has a message that comes to us loud and clear. The enemy's message says, if you mess up, God's going to judge you. If you mess up, there's no more hope for you. If you stumble one more time, you think God's really going to forgive you? Does that voice sound familiar? Every time we struggle with our sin, the enemy wants to keep you captive as an exile on his territory. And it's hard to see God when we're just surrounded by that. See, I don't think, I don't know what Ezekiel was doing there on his 30th birthday by the river. I don't know. Sometimes we, we make wishes on our birthday. We reflect on our life. We, we look forward to the future. What does the future have in store for me? I don't know what he was doing. But God met him at that time. We don't know. It doesn't say that Ezekiel prayed to see God at that moment. God will reveal himself to whomever he wants to reveal himself at whatever time he decides. And, you know, it's like at church we're told, you need to pursue God. You need Jesus in your life, so you have to go. You have to pursue him. Guys, you know what God says? He says, hold on. Just right where you are. Just stop where you are. Because you keep running around and I keep chasing you. You know, it's like when we get busy with this world, it's like we're saying, okay, God, I want to find you as though God is lost. We're the ones that are lost. Right? We're the ones that need to be found, and God wants to find you right where you are. So stop trying in your own effort to find God. Why? Because God is all about his glory. He's all about revealing himself to people. And in our darkest moments, friends, in the darkest places, that's where the smallest sliver of light shines the brightest. I love how he was stuck in that, by that river, and then he sees like the rainbow all around this being on the throne chariot of God. Surely enough, God's judgment, it has to come, okay? God's judgment comes on Israel, it comes on the nations, comes on Jerusalem. In chapter 12 to 24, 
Ezekiel uses his fondness for parable and allegory in these poems and essays. He depicts Israel as, in chapter 15, as a burnt, useless stick. Chapter 16, as a rebellious wife. It doesn't say um, unfaithful, it says rebellious. You know, normally when we hear about husband, wife in the Bible, we, we automatically go to just unfaithfulness. But what, what is a rebellious wife? You know, like, why do you giggle when you heard rebellious wife? I'm just curious. <laughs> you know, I think Ezekiel was just speaking the language that the people could possibly relate to, okay? A burnt, useless stick, a rebellious wife. He talks about them being as a dangerous lion that was taken captive. And two promiscuous sisters. I don't know. That one, the two promiscuous sisters, if you're into the telenovelas and you like the drama, God's word could actually be very entertaining, but this one was actually quite disturbing. I, I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even joking. Like, if you, you take the time to do the study and read through the book of Ezekiel, there's just so much, okay? And there's all this imagery that he's using and all this parable that he's using to try and help the people understand, listen, this is how you are being with God. You're cheating on God. You think you're so great, but you've been taken captive. You guys are useless like a burnt stick. Don't think you're so great after all. Because you have cheated on God. What does God really owe you now? In the same area between chapters 12 and 24, we see Ezekiel acting like a lawyer. Okay? In a few chapters, he's acting like a lawyer. And he says how Israel's judgment is absolutely deserved. For centuries, you have been breaking the covenant law of God. For centuries, you, God gave you so many chances and you still kept going against him, taking advantage, thinking you were so important. The judgment is deserved. He also says how God's goodness demands that he brings justice. No longer will God stand for this. Something has to be done. We have to cut this off. No, long, no longer can they mock God and make a fool of God, calling themselves God's people and behaving the way that they behave. Not honoring or glorifying God, not making God known. This must stop. And God says, there comes a time where this just, you know what? This is done. Okay? Because God is good. He doesn't want to see them going down this hole that they keep digging for themselves. He loves them too much to see this go on any further. They've reached a point of no return. He even says, listen, even if all the righteous men that ever lived, Noah, Daniel, Job, even if they were alive today and they were praying for you, guess what? God would still not accept their petition because that's how wicked you are. Judgment. Judgment on Israel. 
The exile had become inevitable, and they've reached the point of no return. The exile was absolutely going to happen for the entire nation. But God's judgment wasn't just on his people. All of humanity, all of humanity had made this world ugly. So God's judgment would also fall on the nations. When the Bible talks about the nations, it's talking about the world. Okay? Going to the nations, the people that don't know God yet. Okay? So from chapters 25 to 32, we see how Ezekiel first focuses on the states immediately around Israel. And then on to the two most powerful states in the region, Egypt and Tyre. So Israel had allied with these nations and adopted their gods and idols. So God accuses the kings of Tyre and Egypt for arrogantly viewing themselves as gods. Gods who get to define right and wrong on their own terms. And God holds these kings accountable for their pride and announces that he will use Babylon to bring them down. <laughs> they will face God's justice along with everybody else. Imagine that. I mean, God could use anybody. And he said, I'm going to use Babylon to take down those great nations. Why did God allow his people to be given into the hands of Babylon and then give Babylon success? <laughs> Sometimes, friends, we think that a little bit of sin, it ain't going to really matter because why? God is gracious. He's going to forgive me anyway. So let me continue making a life of sin. Let me continue being in the practice of sinning. When we do that, friends, we harden our hearts against God. It's harder to hear his word. Okay. Why did God allow his people to be given into the hands of Babylon? Listen, if you keep choosing something other than God, he's not going to force you to stay with him. He loves you, so he'll pursue you. But he'll never force you to do anything you don't want to do. He gave you the freedom of choice. And he wants you, he wants you to choose him because you love him. He doesn't want you to choose him because you're afraid. You have a fear of missing out. It's a stupid culture that we have today. A fear of missing out. I just learned what FOMO meant. <laughs> God wants you to choose him because you want to. And if you keep choosing something else, God is so loving that he won't torture you by trying to keep you with him anymore. He'll say, fine, if that's what you want, go ahead. He gives you over into the hand of whatever you choose. And then we blame God when we're in that crappy situation. You chose it. You know? You can't blame God for your choices. He gives you the freedom to choose. What are you going to choose? Take some responsibility for the choices that we make. Right? 
God judges the nations. Anybody that chooses something other than God, guess what? There comes a time where it's too late. It'll come to the point where there's no, there's, it's a point of no return. And God says, that's it. This relationship, it's done because you've chosen something else. And then you find yourself being destroyed with the rest of the nations. Finally, in chapter 33, God's judgment finally comes on Jerusalem. The city Jerusalem where the temple was. Babylon finally comes at the 12th year of exile. Once again, that number 12 is so significant. At the 12th year of their exile, God's judgment comes upon Jerusalem. Babylon attacks it a final time and tears down the temple. There's no more place for God's presence there. How do they learn about this? They're all the way in Babylon, right? So one of the guys ends up coming out. He escapes from Jerusalem after the, after the attack, and he makes his way over to the Babylonian uh, refugee camp. And while he's there, the Lord shows Ezekiel, talk to this man. He has a message for you. And all he says is, Jerusalem has fallen. Those are the only recorded words. That's all they needed to hear. Jerusalem has fallen. Today, we might be like, let me get on Google. Let me find out what happened in Jerusalem, right? Back then, all you had was a message that came. And that message was enough for the people to understand. Everything that Ezekiel had prophesied has come true. It's only at that point that people finally realized that there was a prophet of God among them in exile. A voice of light in a very dark place. The prophets prophesy, they speak, they declare God's truth. Okay? And this was his role, Ezekiel's role. God used him. God used him not to judge them alone. But when they experienced the judgment, God used Ezekiel to bring them hope. Remember, he said, I will take their, their heart of stone, put my spirit in them, and give them a soft heart of flesh. I'm going to make them new. See, so it wasn't just the judgment. There was something else happening after the judgment, you see. Hope. Hope for Israel because they were judged. Hope for the nations because they were judged. And hope for all creation. Hope for all creation. In chapters 34 to 37, it says, God promises to raise up a new David, a future messianic king, who's going to be the kind of leader Israel needed but never got. The new Israel who is going to come under the messianic king's rule, 
is going to be a transformed people. God is going to deal with their hearts of rebellion by giving them new hearts. In Deuteronomy, God had promised that he was going to remove their hard hearts and send his spirit and his people into his people to give them new soft hearts so that they can love and obey their God. That was already foretold. Ezekiel had a vision as well of a huge valley. This is in chapter 37. This is weird. He gets this vision of a huge valley, and guess what it's filled with? Dry human bones. A desolate wasteland, no life, just bones. Remember what bones, when it's mentioned in the Bible, it, it signifies strength and power. But these bones are dry and brittle and broken. These are the bones of Israel. Showing Ezekiel this is the current spiritual state of Israel. Useless. No life. And then a strong wind comes and blows over the bones. And the bones start to rattle and rise up. And life starts to enter into the bones. And the bones start to take form and shape. And these skeletons are now standing erect to the point where, guess what? The skin and the muscles start to grow. And they're being made new. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel's standing there where dry bones once laid. Now he's standing among a new, transformed, regenerated people. The wind, God's spirit, comes and breathes over the dry bones. This brings me back to creation. When God formed man from the dust of the ground, and then he bent down face to face in a very intimate way, and he breathed life into this lump of clay, and he became a living soul. You see, there's something about the wind, something about God's breath. It brings life, you see. The valley of dry bones. The only remaining hope is for God to remake humans to love God and others. For the nations, chapters 38 and 39, God, he defeats evil among the nations. This evil is personified as Gog. Everybody say Gog. It's just kind of fun to say Gog from the land of Magog. It's a good thing your name is in Turun. From the land of Toronto. All right, so Gog from Magog. This is an idea that's taken from Genesis 10. And Gog represents this big warrior. The, all the evil of the, the strength of the political world, of this, everything we have here, okay? Our, our religious institutions, everything. Everything that's man-made that isn't of God, that's what Gog represents, okay? Everything of this world. And here we see Gog, and he is, um, 
He's allied with seven, seven nations from all four sides of the compass. Seven, that's another important number. That's a number of completion or totality, okay? So Gog, along with these seven nations, this is the totalness of all the evil and wicked of this world, okay? But God defeats Gog because he's like, your name sounds too much like mine. I don't want anyone getting confused. But the enemy tries to confuse us, right? We want to follow God, and the enemy takes God's truth and twists it, doesn't he? And then we get led astray. So anyway, that, that's just a side thing. But for God, he unleashes his power over all the evil because this is the way that he's giving hope to the nations. You see here, there was a, he defeats Gog by earthquake. There are two accounts where he defeats Gog by fire. And then there's this picture of Gog lying down there in the field along with all the other warriors fighting for this world, laid waste out in the field, unburied for all to see. Death. So he gives Israel hope, how? He, he brings life to the dead, okay? He brings life to the bones. That's how he gives hope. How does he give hope to the nations? Remember. There are innocent people living in the nations that are being oppressed by the evil and the evil of mankind, okay? And God says, I give hope to the nations by getting rid of the evil, okay? These scenes are full of symbols and imagery about God's final defeat of human evil that has ruined his world so that he could pave the way for a new creation. So if you've stayed with me so far in this study, maybe you've come to realize this isn't just talking about Israel anymore. This isn't just talking about Jerusalem. Ezekiel's vision in this Old Testament book is talking about the end times, my friends. It's talking about what is still to come. The word of God is still relevant. The message he gave Ezekiel is the same message God still wants us to hear now. Not to fear the judgment, but to give us hope in a dark world. Okay? Check this out. I love this. I love this part. How God gives hope for all creation. So, Ezekiel gets another vision, okay? God's presence is going to return to his people, and his temple will bring cosmic restoration. Ezekiel gets a vision of a long, elaborate temple and a new city. He doesn't say the name of the city. He doesn't say that the city is called Jerusalem, okay? But there's this long, elaborate temple, and there's a new city, He's given a heavenly guide to Ezekiel that walks him through a new altar. There are new priests and a whole new worship system. Out with the old and in with the new. God is in the business of restoration. He's in the business of making all things new. The things of this world will pass away. 
From creation, we get this understanding that this is how God works. He prepares a place, and then he fills it, right? The days of creation. He prepares a, the skies, and then he puts in the birds. He prepares the waters, and then he puts in the fish. He prepares the land with all the vegetation, and then he fills it with us and all the other animals that creep and crawl on the earth. He creates the space, and then he fills it. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he left, back to his father. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's the hope message, friends. The hope knowing that, guess what? He's preparing a place, guys. It's not done yet. Maybe that's why we're still waiting. I don't know, right? I don't know what God's doing right now, but I know that there's a place that he's preparing for me. He's preparing for you, for all who love him, for who, all who believe. He's preparing a place for us. And guess what? He's coming again. I mean, that's the good news, guys. He's not leaving us where we are. You might say this life sucks. And people give up. And we get tired and we complain. Why should we? Our God is with us. Our God is alive. Our God is still working. He's still fighting for us. And he still has a plan for us, friends, to give us hope and a future with him. Check this out. I used to think that if I believe in God, I get to go up to heaven, right? And all of eternity means I get to stay on the cloud. I get to sit on the cloud, play a harp. Maybe I'll have the long hair, but I got wings too. You know, I don't know. And I'm wondering, why would I want to spend eternity <laughs> doing that, right? <laughs> God didn't paint that picture for us in his word. If that's your idea of what eternity with God is like, get that out of your head. That's not biblical, okay? What is biblical is God's plan after he has wiped out all the evil from this world, after all the things of this world are, are faded and are gone, he's going to restore and make a new world. Check this out. In the vision... There's a stream that trickles out from the threshold of the temple, and it trickles down the stairs and out the courtyard and in through the city. And as it moves, it starts to gain some momentum and it starts to grow. It's not a tiny creek. It becomes a raging river that pours out into the wilderness, into the desert, and it goes down to one of the most desolate places on earth, the Dead Sea Valley. This rushing river coming from the temple. And along this river, it starts to leave a trail in the wilderness of trees starting to sprout up and flowers and life coming to this dry desert valley. And then he sees animals enjoying the water, drinking, eating from the trees, everything that has been prepared for them. This is a picture, friends, of Eden. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the water, the trees, 
and then it was filled with people. God's command was go and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, manage it well. This is my gift to you, God says. You get to live here where you will enjoy everything, all the blessings, all that I have to give you. You get to enjoy it. But are you settled with what God is offering you or are you still chasing after other things? This is the whole lesson through Ezekiel, friends. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that we need. Why are we still chasing after other things to satisfy the yearnings and the longings of our soul? God already has it all. And if you haven't tasted it yet, friends, guess what? There's still more to come. There's still more to see. Okay, if you think I've tasted and that's all that I get, no, you left the buffet. Okay, you tasted a little bit of the buffet and you made your decision and you didn't go back for more. Guess what? With God's word, we get to discover God more and more each day. It says feed on the word. It's the bread of life, not the bread of poop. Okay, it's the bread of life. So we feed on his word day by day. And guess what happens when we do that? A wind, a breath of God comes to us. And he restores our dead spiritual lives and awakens us as new spiritual beings. So this new Garden of Eden, this new Garden of Eden, there's hope for all creation. New heavens and a new earth. It's called The Lord is There. Jehovah Shama. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is how God is making us new, friends. So if you've never heard of Ezekiel before, I hope you had a good introduction with this uh, Coles Notes study, I guess. Right? I hope you've had a good introduction. And this entire book of Ezekiel, it just talks about God's love and his justice. Two words that sum up Ezekiel's book, it's God's love and his justice. Whenever you present God to your friends or your family, don't show only one side of God, the one that judges, the one that condemns, the one that says, if you don't turn to God, you're going to hell, you know? It's like, don't just show them that side because guess what? God is also love, all right? And he says, even though you're screwing up, even though you're doing bad stuff, you know, God loves you. But he's not going to leave you where you are. He chased you into exile so he could take you somewhere new. He says, change your clothes and put on Christ. That's the only way that we're going to enjoy being in the presence of God for all eternity. Amen?